and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm AJ Brandon. I'm Piercy Hayward. What? It's a backwards <laughs> episode. After I was not here last time, I just wanted to mix things up again, you know, see, see if I could, I could not be here again. Turns out I am. I'm always here. This is a podcast in which I faff around a lot, but for the most part, we talk about the process of designing board games. AJ, what is a board game? Whoa, that is way too introspective for me. Are you, are you talking about Plato's form? Of a board game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is the platonic board game? What is designing a board game and what is a board game? Wow, I mean, if, if, <laughs> if I actually answered that question, we would get so much hate mail from people being like, um, actually, that doesn't count as a board game. <laughs> uh, which would be nice. We haven't gotten any hate mail yet, I don't think. So uh, would we like to add to the add to the coffers? Yeah, make some new friends <laughs> like you did last time. <laughs> AJ is referencing a very specific instance where I used to host a podcast and someone sent me hate mail and she's now one of my best friends and works with us on projects and AJ met her today in a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> AJ, aside from my personal life, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about board game strengths and weaknesses as a medium. Ooh, and do we have any follow-up for the episode that we're following up on? I do not. Do you? I have no follow-up. Perfect. Let's move on. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that our first time with no follow-up? I think so. I think Ooh, so. exciting. <laughs> we're really hitting our stride here. We're, we're not lying to people anymore as often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every episode is perfect, so there's nothing to discuss. It's great. Let's just dive right in here. There's a lot of different mediums for games like arguably you know you could say that there's board games there are physical sports that you know we don't want to get into the definition of what's a sport because technically dexterity games are sports but anyway there's like the physical traditional sports that people think of there's even well, hang like... on a dexterity game is a sport because <laughs> if you think if chess is a sport isn't every game a sport well i'll be pedantic let's do it <laughs> <laughs> if physical prowess is a factor in the success of victory than it is a sport so chess is not a sport because you could just play like stephen hawking could just play by you know saying the moves that that stephen hawking would like to make yeah no we're into genre rockers here because chess is widely regarded as a sport so this this specific definition <laughs> that you've got it's not have universal appeal or agreement so uh, we, we cannot state you, you see exactly what i mean here this, this will be where all, all of our philosophy is <laughs> well, I, I understand, but you, you, made, you made the classic mistake of trying to define something very strictly, which, uh, as we've learned, is, is never a good idea. Instead, you've got you to gotta, you go with the marker system. The marker system's where it's at. The extraordinarily compelling marker for a sport is it requires physical prowess. Yeah, but that's not... Uh... For the record, I do agree with you, Peter. Good, yeah. good call. Uh, so, um, there's sports, there's board games, there's card games, there's parlor games, there's party games. Uh, video games, RPGs, there's mind games war games arguably mega games are their own thing yeah there, there's a lot of different sub-genres of this and we i'm specifically excluding role-playing games here i'm specifically excluding video games we might touch on mega games a little bit in here maybe grand scale games too if we want to get fancy <laughs> so at the start of the episode when i was like what is a board game i didn't know this is what we we're talking about today so uh <laughs> now now we do have to provide some kind of definition so we're talking about the pros and cons not the pros and cons we're talking about the strengths and weaknesses of board games and, and what are we classifying under that as a medium what are the things that board games can do that other games can also do but are done better in in board games as a really clear-cut example here let's take something that isn't even game exclusive narrative Board games are not the best medium for narrative. If you have a story that you want to tell, 
it would be better to use a medium that's more conducive, like uh, a movie or a book or something along those lines, right? Even a video game, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Board games are probably one of the worst ways you could convey narrative through things. Even like cave paintings, uh, in a way, can (laughs) convey narrative in ways that board games are just unable to. But we'll also talk about what board games do well and like the types of narratives that are more conducive to board games as a medium. Does that make gotcha. sense? Does that yep. feel like a good amount of context? Let's do it. Technically, what I was asking is, is what are we covering under the scope of board games here? So what we're talking about here is basically any game that isn't a video game or a role-playing game. Something like Bridge or classics like Monopoly or modern games like Wingspan. Anything in there, that counts. That's all fair game. Ah, fair game. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> We're not trying to exclude anything that you might think of traditionally as a game. We're just trying to say, like, video games are a very separate medium. RPGs are a very separate medium. We're not worrying about those ones. Yeah. We're firmly sidestepping the, like, what is a game? Is an escape room a game? We're just, we're saying, yep, for now, (laughs) sure, let's do it. So delivering character and plot. This is something that we were just talking about. Seems like the natural place to start. In a book, you've got hundreds and hundreds of pages of dialogue and actions that that character takes to be able to understand that character. In board games, typically, you are the character. So it's very hard to deliver a character by telling you how to play, right? I would not necessarily say you normally are the character, but even if you encounter a character, they're going to be two lines of flavor text in an image. They're, yes. they're not going to be deeply, you know, and they're not going to be changing necessarily throughout the game. Like the closest thing I can think of is something like Time Stories, which has the same guy always delivering the mission at the start of the game. And they deliberately wrote him to be the most obnoxious person in the world. So you all hate him, which is an emotional reaction of sorts. But I don't think he really grows as a character or anything like that. Whereas, you know, the 15th time you play Village Pillage, the raid is always going to look the same. She hasn't like evolved. And even in the same game, if you bring her out 20 times, she's the same character every single time. There's no character development there. It's not a good way to bond with characters or or tell a story video games have some iconic characters master chief mario these are characters that people can get really excited about (laughs) two very good but very different examples (laughs) yes that's the idea (laughs) but like there's no board game equivalent there's no mascot for board games where you're like oh yeah i really care about i don't know whoever and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like you said in a board game typically it's a picture a name and maybe a line of flavor text and maybe a thematic ability if you're lucky and in video games you spend hours playing with this person they often talk but even even with mario who doesn't talk there's a lot of personality just in the way that mario expresses their jump and all those sorts of things right yeah i've been thinking a lot about this is a bit of a tangent i've been recently thinking a lot about the fact that the human brain is very good at differentiating between like spending time with someone for a good reason and just spending time with someone and so if Mm. you spend a bunch of time with someone you like them more (laughs) like our human brain is just like oh i've spent a lot of time with this person i must like them that is how that works (laughs) and not not even people but like songs and stuff like that like there's a yeah there's all all kinds of studies done on this but the human brain is very bad at differentiating between time spent with someone because you like them and time spent with someone and it's just like oh i must like them I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more. Uh, maybe not necessarily right here, but that's a really interesting concept I hadn't heard of before. We'll, we'll put a pin that for now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's cool. That's cool. So for each of these weaknesses, I want to also give examples of times they've been done well in games and how to do them well. So like, if you do care about doing narrative in your game, what are ways that we can sort of overcome the hurdles that are natural to board games? Okay, so let me ask you, what's the best narrative you've ever played in a game and what's the best character you've ever encountered in a different game? So the best character I've ever encountered in a game is from Battlestar Galactica. There's a character who... It's a little bit cheating. (laughs) So it's not cheating. 
I haven't seen the TV show. Oh, really? Oh, well, that does surprise me. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> so the game is so narratively cohesive. It's so well done. I feel like I've seen spoilers for the TV show because I've played the game. <laughs> like, I can guarantee you, I can tell you the plot of multiple episodes, not because there was a card that said, and then this thing happened, but because of just thematically how the game plays, which is unbelievable. I think it might be the best example of a thematic game I've ever played. Interesting. But specifically for characters, there's a uh, character... It has been a while since I played it, so bear with me, people. I'm so sorry if I slightly alter the details here. But there's a character who's like this hotshot ace pilot. So she's got this ability that works really well when she's in Starfires. But she's also got other skills as well. I think she was okay at engineering, maybe. And in Battlestar Galactica, every character has a positive ability, and they have a negative ability. And that's the thing that really sold me on it. Because I can see this picture, I can see this person, I can see their skills, I see their special ability, and then their negative ability tells me a lot. The negative ability was if anyone basically accuses you and wants to like put you in jail, you automatically go there. Like it's it's like it's done <laughs> and it's hard to get out of. And like I can tell you just from playing that game, I guarantee you like there's an episode where she disregarded authority, she went out and she did something risky and heroic, but that got her in trouble and then she had to spend a lot of time in jail and had to convince everybody to let her out. Like, wow, what that happened in the game. So, like, the game played out the way that I assume an episode did. And each of the characters has these little, not arcs, or not a character arc, but these little, like, moments that weave together this narrative and make it feel like they're actual living characters. And the abilities encourage you to play and encourage your opponents to play in ways that bring out that character for you. All right, so separately to Battlestar, what's the best plot that you've ever encountered in a, in a board game? By far, Kingdom Death Monster. And the way that this one does it is it it doesn't have just a narrative that you read. Blocks of text I personally detest. I know many people who detest, but those are anecdotal pieces of evidence. Personally, I think that games do better when they create narrative through play. I think that's one of the strengths of the games that we'll get to later. But for Kingdom Death Monster is they have story beats. So like at this particular time, read this particular chapter. So there's punctuated, clear, overarching narrative of what happens to your civilization. But between those sections, you have little story moments. And a lot of those ones are procedurally generated. Each round, you're going to take one of these cards, and it's going to have a narrative that plays out, and you've got some choice in that and how it deals with your civilization. And then based off of that choice, other events could happen for the deadline. It might say, based off this choice, mark this name down and check out this event, you know, three rounds from now. And it turns out that the thing that you did has repercussions. And then there's even smaller moments than that where it's like you're going out for a hunt. There's tiny little events that happen step by step. And the events carry over and they matter. And they don't just matter in broad strokes for your civilization. Like you learn how to paint and now you have no story events that are based around the being able to express art. But also you've got narrative for your characters. You know, I had a character who got a critical hit and instantly killed one of the scariest monsters in the game. And that was like an incredible moment. And now that character has that thing over them. And then they lost an arm fighting that same monster later on, or like the same species. And now it's like, oh yeah, it's this guy, Lion's Bane. You know, we have that story built into it. And so for general narrative, I think Kingdom Death Monster blows every other board game out of the water. Oh, interesting. Do you have answers for those? Yeah, so for character, my first impulse was to say time stories, because I think they did a really good job of having these little, like, the characters that you play have these little personalities. But then as you were speaking, I remember Dead of Winter. And I think Dead of Winter mm -hmm. has the best bang for buck in terms of character per card. 
Uh, my favorite being the mall center. So this is like old <laughs> cranky guy who's a mall center. And in dead of winter, you're trying to keep the colony's morale up as zombies attack. Whenever you lose someone from your colony, morale goes down because you lost someone to the zombies. Except if you lose the mall center, morale goes up. <laughs> and it just tells such a, like, you know, everything you need to know about the fact that, like, the art and that ability, it tells such a nice little character moment. In terms of story, I've not played many stories that actually, like, have a narrative or try to have a narrative. I played Charterstone, for example, which does try to have a narrative, and I don't feel, I don't feel like that that was that game's strong suit. So I'm, I'm struggling to think of that, which is sort of emblemic of what you're describing, of, like, this is not a genre that does stories particularly well. I guess time stories would have to be my default answer. I played two or three of those modules and one of them wasn't entirely terrible. So well done, time stories. <laughs> I was playing The King's Dilemma a little uh, a little while ago and the way that one handles it is it's like you read out like story beat and then choose how you want to handle it. And based off of that, you'll go in different directions. And like that's even going in the right direction for games, I think, where it's like based off of the choices you make. But at the end of playing two games, I asked everyone, hey, do you remember anything that happened? Like, did anything actually have impact when we go into the next one? They're like, nah, there was like some red iron that made weapons better and <laughs> we sold that, right? Yeah, we sold that. But then other people had it, I think. It's really not board game strength. What I think, instead of having blocks of text, you just have the moments and the characters and the abilities enforce play and let players tell the story through their game. People are going to remember the actions that they took in it. And if you can make those thematic and tie those into the narrative of what happens in the game, that's what's going to make it memorable, I think. I, You've already asked this on the podcast, and I'll, I'll try to summarize your answer, which is that you play board games specifically because it's a thing you can do with other people and you like spending time with other people. And if it wasn't for that aspect, you would never play board games as a medium. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but that, that was the vibe I got from you. That's broadly speaking pretty accurate, yeah. My answer is very differently different to yours. And so I'm going to, I'm going to mention stuff that we will probably touch on later, but I like board games specifically because they allow you to envision an entire system. So when you're playing a video game, they hide a lot of stuff behind the, the box. Like, oh, I, sw I swung this sword and I hit. Why did I hit? Well, no one can really answer that except for the game developer who's going to be like, oh yeah, we calculated these 17 numbers and these 17 numbers and they averaged this. So this is why you did this much damage to this. With a board game, because the players are the computer, you can always say, hey, if I'm trying to do this, what do I need to succeed? And sometimes the answer is you need to roll a die and get the thing, but you can see how many sides the dice has. You can always calculate that. As a player, I am privy to the entire system from start to finish. And so as a control freak, as <laughs> I run a company, so you know I'm a control freak. As a control freak, but also as someone who's just deeply fascinated by systems, that's why I like board games specifically. Hmm. And that's, that's what puts me off about video games a little bit and so even the video games that i do like like my favorite video games are stuff like limbo and odd world and stuff like that where it's still very clear to the players exactly what is causing like the cause and effect is completely visible to the players interesting i i would not have expected you to say limbo i would expect you to say something like into the breach or slay the spire yeah stuff like that yeah so those games for me are they're very good. What's the um, FTL? Uh, they're all very good games. But what they've done is basically said, we want to make a board game, but we want to make it too complex for players to do all the busy work. And that's fine. That's a totally legitimate thing. But I'd just rather play a board game that, <laughs> that did the work of making it accessible and fun. Those games are very good. That's not a criticism of those games. But that for me is, is feels like what they were trying to do. Like Slay the Spire is like, we want to make a board game, but we don't want to print 20,000 cards in the box. Uh, so we'll just make it a video game instead. 
And obviously that's not exactly what they're doing, but that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Whereas stuff like uh, Limbo and Oddworld are puzzle games where once I've gone through it once and I see the puzzle, then I have to see how to solve the puzzle and I know every action exactly how it affects every other thing. Like a board game, I can process the entire system. It's interesting because Limbo is not really like... I, I guess it is a puzzle game, but it's really like a do something once and die and then it's generally pretty obvious what right. you need to do to not die. <laughs> oh, see, I uh, I don't think it's that obvious. I, th- I think it's like a bit of trial and error, but like... I mean, maybe I'm just smarter than you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the first time you do it and die is you learning like... How, is, is you setting up the board and then the second time that you do it is you playing the game. I don't know that I ever died a second time to something in Limbo. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you did, or at least the sequel, uh, Inside, you, you you must have. I did an Inside. Inside did have execution, and Inside felt more like a puzzle than Limbo did, by far. Uh, yeah, I like them both so much. Thinking some of the stuff with reversing gravity and all that, like, you can comprehend what's happening, but you need to, like, yeah, it's such, such a good game. Anyway, if you haven't played uh, Limbo or Inside, definitely check them out. Oddworld's probably a bit too old to be fun now, but... Um... Yeah, stated for sure at, at the time it was really significant uh one more thing i, I just want to touch on kind of clarify is i did mention the king's dilemma and i was saying how the text boxes weren't impactful but what the game does do really well is it gives you a a house like in game of thrones a house a, a family right and it will tell you in the flavor text like here's who you are here's what you're trying to do and it'll give you goals and the goals do encourage you to play in a particular playstyle that generates the story and, and makes your character feel like the character. But it doesn't handcuff you. It doesn't say you have to do it this way. It just encourages you by in, by giving you incentives. So if you do a lot of science and discovery and stuff for the nerdy race, then you can mark off an achievement if you get that like really, really far. And so you've got the achievement for doing these like big moment things. And then you've got, um, basically, you'll have like goals for each round. And so it could be like, have lots of money available or general positioning of any of them. And so these give you different ways of playing the game that encourage different play styles based off of your house without forcing you uncomfortably. They just gently guide you. And that's the type of direction that I think works well, as I mentioned. The next thing that board games are bad at is horror. So you know what's scary? The unknown, having things happen outside of your control and not knowing why they're happening. (laughs) This is almost an exact counterpoint to what I was saying about why I like board games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every horror board game that I've played, to be clear, board games, not RPGs, not video games. Video games do it fantastically. Check out Darkwood. Darkwood is the best horror video game, not close. I've been just enjoying it like crazy lately. RPGs can do it well. Uh, Dread is a fantastic system that uses a Jenga tower to simulate the attention release cycle of horror. And so you build it up, it gets higher and higher and higher. And every time you try and do something, it gets more and more. And then it crashes, and you've got that moment to breathe, and then you can reset. For board games, most of the time, they're just excuses to make cool miniatures, and it's just a 1v all or a co-op miniature slugfest. It doesn't feel that different from, like, Descent, where it's just an action game. And it's, it's not scary when I can look over, I see brightly lit exactly what the monster looks like, I look over at stat sheet, and I say, oh, it has menace 3 and can move 2 spaces, and... <laughs> Like, spooky spooky <laughs> yeah it's more like a, a paint of code on a car than an actual horror game mm-hmm. now i'm working on a horror game right now the thing that was important to me was to make it a one vl game so that the one could have perfect information and play the game and do the systems while hiding those systems and those stats and everything from the players so the one knows what's going on the one is the scary monster and is asymmetrically powerful they're, they're way stronger than the people the people are just trying to get out or, or survive 
and the people don't know from game to game what the monster is, what it can do, and even over the course of the game that might change. And that's how you can, that's how I'm trying at least to recapture some of that feeling in a board game. That's interesting because with that you're trying to capture it mechanically. You're trying to like yes. use the mechanics of a board game to capture it and, and you know, best of luck, I think that's a challenge. Um, the three examples I can think of actual fear-inducing games uh, one's a little weak, so I'll start with that one. Uh, this is the only one of the three that I've played, so maybe the other two are equally weak, and I just don't know. Uh, I've played a lot of uh, the one versus mini game Spectre Ups, mm. and that game gave me more adrenaline and more tension and more nervousness and more like, oh, they're going to see me, than anything else I've ever played, like not even coming close. I don't know how much, I don't know if that's really horror as much as it's just like tension, because it's, it's not like you said, fear of the unknown, it's, it's fear of getting caught. It's more mm-hmm. thriller. I, I would say that's, that's like the, the perfect thriller game, <laughs> right. which is a subtle difference to horror. But um, the, the two examples I can think of that might be more similar to what you're talking about, uh, I've not played any of these, are Nyctophobia from Pandasaurus Games. Mm-hmm. Have you played that? I have not, but I, I know of it. And yeah, that seems like it, it could deliver on that. Yeah, do you, want, do you want to describe the premise? Yeah, so it's um, made by someone who designed it to be able to play games with their blind uncle, if I recall correctly. And so the game is designed specifically that people are not able to see during the game they will feel out the path and they're trying to i think get to like the car and escape something on those lines they're like creeping their hand around like oh man oh man am i going to touch the monster and, and get hosed there is one person i think that's like the monster and is also like guiding their hands a little bit to an extent but yeah the idea is you can't see and it builds up that tension of like i might be just about to hit the monster and they're going to get me yeah, so it, it's uh, maybe not like pure horror, but I'd say that's pretty close. And then the other one, I don't know the name of, you, you'd know it, uh, the 70s German game where you play with the lights off. Shadows in the Forest, yep. That's the one. So that one, it's another one versus many. It's kind of like a combination of the last two games I described. It's one versus many where everyone is playing goblins trying to hide from a troll, something very German, and you, you light an actual physical candle and you the, the troll is the candle. So you move the troll around the board and because you're playing with the lights off the troll can only see what is lit by the candle so they're trying to find the goblins and the goblins have like tried to hide their little tokens around the board and so again maybe more thriller than horror but it gives you that actual like real life uh tension and and adrenaline shadows in the forest is by far the worst game i own and i will never get rid of it (laughs) (laughs) the the premise is so cool and the game is so bad I've had it on my list of stuff to think about designing, like an updated version of that that's actually good because it's, you know, 50 years old. So I think people would be okay with taking inspiration from it and it would fit the Jelly Bean catalog really nicely. Hit me up. I would love to work on that. Yeah. That's also been on my like short list of things where it's like, oh, I would just love to see that concept, but done well. Well, finish your vegetables and we'll see how we do. <laughs> and you're right. Like when I'm playing it and I'm playing as the troll and I'm leaning over and I'm I'm only able to see what I can literally see with my eyes. And I lean into a tree and I hear someone gasp and I squint. I can't see it. Like, that's perfect. <laughs> that is a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. great example. Great example. Uh, one more game that does this well with still being more traditional and like giving you information and stats and stuff is Kingdom Death Monster again. So Kingdom Death Monster is a horror, technically roguelike campaign game, as in you lose, you restart. And so because you can lose and restart, there's a lot of tension that builds up when you've literally put 20 hours into a campaign and know that it could all be wiped out with a few bad rolls. And 
part of what they do to hide the monster is when you encounter a monster, you don't just see everything right off the bat. It's got like a deck of AI cards and each of those cards has different attack moves and things like that. You're only ever playing with a subset of them. So you're not sure what exactly they have. And the first time you fight them, especially, you have no idea what it's capable of. There's this monster here. It's going to mess you up. Good luck. <laughs> and uh, so and because the game is so hard, uh, it really does reinforce all these feelings. And also because the monster can cause permanent damage to you and constantly causes minor permanent afflictions. Some are really minor. Some are you lost an arm. But because you have a civilization with a lot of people, it's okay mechanically that a character gets maimed because you've got a lot of them. And I just thought that was a fantastic example of how to do horror pretty well. Yeah, games are often used, uh, you know, the unknown of dice roll. Like Dead of Winter is technically in the horror genre because it's all zombies. And every time you go outside, one of, one of the sides of the D20 that you roll every time you leave is just instant death. And so it's, it's trying, to, trying to do that same thing. But I, I feel like it's a, a real uphill battle. I think I just told the story in the previous episode about my friend who played that game first turn rolled the die instantly died use their second character on their next thing <laughs> instantly died and they're like i hate this game <laughs> yeah horror games are not for them next up is hiding rules so one thing that video games can do that i'm super jealous of is just flat out lying to the player in a lot of video games the last 10 percent of your health bar is actually like 30 percent of your health bar they, really. they show you visually what it actually is or they show you what they want you to think it actually is but it's not i didn't know that another great example is coyote time where if you are playing a platformer and you press jump the second after you've walked off the ledge it counts you jump anyway and this is in a lot more games than you would think like celeste people are like oh what a hardcore game there are so many features to help you in Celeste to make it to make you feel like, yeah, I did that thing when you totally didn't. You failed, but yeah. they let you get away with it. And I that's know, something that, yeah. I know the portal games will nudge you into the portals if you're close because it's not that satisfying to like do 95% of the work and then just miss by a few pixels and, and die when, you know, you, you basically got it. So they'll, they'll put you into the portal. Another huge one is aim assist. Like if you've ever played any video yeah. game first person shooter, almost all of them, single player at least, will have some degree of just curving bullets into your target. And board games just can't do that. We can't hide rules from players, at least without a DM or a one versus many game, because obviously players need to know how to play. And how would you possibly manage that otherwise? I guess app games might be able to get away with it if they tell you what the chances of a thing happening you press it and they just lie to you but oh that that's the opposite of why i play board games <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so next up is just really really complex games so in board games you can have really complex games like pax transhumanity or feudum colonists virgin queen right these are really heavy complex games lots of interlocking systems yeah yeah there's a limit and often it's systems that are limiting you but we'll go into that more in a minute but oftentimes it's just the sheer amount of stuff going on. Like if you thought of upkeep of just having to generate one resource per every tile on this like 100 tile board, the upkeep of that alone is too much. But even the upkeep aside, you have games where there's just so many rules and so many different things for all these different units. It just becomes completely untenable. But when a video game can do the math for you and can do all these things, then it's much more manageable for people. Yeah, you and I are working on a big combat kind of game that's going to have a lot of units at the end. And the thing that we're really making sure to focus on is every unit has one unique rule 
that is intuitive for that unit type. Because it'd be very easy to be like, ah, this unit has these 17 stats and these four abilities and all this. But like, if you're playing a board game, you just can't keep all that in your head and you don't want people to keep that in your head. And you don't want your opponents to have to keep that in your head about your units. So every unit has to be dirt simple. Mm -hmm. And building on that is the automated systems concept. So something like Dwarf Fortress or Minecraft, something where... Factorio. Yeah, where there's a lot of different interlocking systems and a lot of math going on for how these different things interact with each other. That gets really out of hand really, really quickly. A lot more quickly than you would think, actually. And in board games, it's very difficult to do that. In terms of a way to have systems that can work off of each other but don't have upkeep, I think that is doable. My best example of that is actually Descent First Edition, where you can spend three movement to jump over any space. Full stop. You can spend a movement point to do one of, like, basically a list of actions. You can also spend your fatigue as if it were a movement point. You can also use a potion to restore your fatigue. So it's like there's all these subtler ways that these are sort of systemically combined where one thing can affect another, but without being crazy complicated. It's just more of a opening up the system so that they can chain off of each other as opposed to directly linking, directly coupling together multiple systems for complexity. That's one of our favorite things in a board game. You and I were working on a game, Werewolves of Wall Street, the other day, which uh, I've designed with Nick Wolf and you are doing the dev on. And I'm trying to work out, uh, do, you, do you want to try to describe the thing that I've been raving about you for two days now? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the game is a social deduction game, but the key selling point of this game is you can bet on the outcome of missions that people go on. Essentially, if you're familiar with the resistance, you'll have teams of people going on them. And you can also bet on who you think are the traders of the group. And so the game has a lot to do with trying to figure out who people are based off of how they use these systems, based off of how they bet the missions are going to go, based off of who they predict. And one thing that was missing was the werewolves, who are like the spies in the resistance, basically, they could vote on who they thought were the werewolves, but didn't actually do anything. And it was just this weird sort of like... Vestigial system. Like, they have to vote because otherwise you'll be like, who's not voting? Oh, they're the werewolf. But it, did, mm -hmm. it didn't do anything for them. And so we needed we needed it to do something. And we wanted the werewolves to be incentivized to accuse the other werewolves, which is a tricky needle to thread. So we needed to work out how to do that without adding a bunch of upkeep, a bunch of math, etc. And we were going back and forth on this for like 20 minutes before you said... What if the werewolf accusatory tokens cancel out the player tokens? And so it goes from being that however many tokens there are that belong to not werewolves just cost you to now you are actively incentivized to accuse your fellow werewolves and to throw them under the bus because that actually protects them. You yeah. now have something that you can do to interact with the other people. One of my favorite favorite fixes I've ever seen in the game. I was very impressed. And I, I just love those kinds of things where you take like the pre-existing systems and you can combine them in subtle, clever ways that does a bunch of stuff at once. Yes, I thought that was great. I think it was uh, the guy who made Zelda who said, a good solution doesn't solve one problem, it solves many. And that's not me trying to toot my own horn, that's me talking about like <laughs> solves in general. Like the more elegant you can get the game, the better. So building on that more is the idea of real-time games. So, you know, you can think about something like StarCraft, which is just miles and miles beyond anything that a board game could ever achieve. The way to do real-time games is because you have to keep all the systems in mind at once, you need the systems themselves to be simple. You can't have people asking for rules clarifications. It needs to be very clear and direct what they're trying to do. And one way to do this is to split things up. So in Captain Sonar, you have different roles. 
here's a small role for you. Here's a small role for you. Now we have a team of people with small roles and now the whole thing can operate. If you just had two people playing one against each other, trying to do all those things, it would be absolutely impossible. And one of the reasons that board games are not particularly good at this is because they don't have that automation. So I remember playing a half hour game of Captain Sonar where my job was to track the movement of the other ship. And for the first half of the game, I was like, oh man, I must be really bad at this because they keep doing stuff that I would have thought was impossible. I must be missing stuff. And so I was listening more and more closely until I heard them do something that was explicitly against the rules of the game. And I was like, guys, hey, we need to pause because the other team had just misunderstood a rule. And, you know, we'd been playing for 20 minutes because in a video game, the video game won't let you misunderstand a rule. It'll just not let you do the thing that's legal. In a board game, the players are the engine that is running the game. And so if they misunderstand a rule, then the whole thing can collapse. Normally in a, in a non-real-time game, that's less of a problem. But in a real-time game, you can't be like, hang on, wait, can I just check this rule? No, we're playing in real-time. You need to be going, 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 going. It's one of the reasons why real-time games are such a weakness for board games, I think. It's also just difficult because it's difficult to pay attention to what other people are doing. Like in a non-real-time game, I can see Peter reach over and places Meeple down like, wait, that's not a thing that you're allowed to do. Exactly, yeah. Whereas in real time, I'm paying attention to what I'm doing. I can't see what you're doing, right? Yeah. The other way to do it is to have slow real time. This isn't so much a fix as it is just a different way of talking about real time games. So if there's like a five minute timer and you can negotiate only within that five minutes, right? It's, right. it's kind of a different thing, but I just want to flag it as like, yeah, you can do that in board games without worrying too much. That's how you get away with it. Yeah. Do you have any other things that jump out to you as being particular weaknesses of board gaming? The two that spring to mind are both sort of variations on the same theme. One is having a game that allows a lot of players. <laughs> Board games generally max out at a pretty low player count. Like at most, what your Twilight Imperiums go up to 10, 8, what, what eight, was the max? And it's out? a nightmare at 8 for the record. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, like, maybe you can have a light party game that goes to more. But if you're talking like a, a full long game experience, you're going to max out at, at 6 or 7. Whereas you and I have played like in a Halo group with up to 10, 12, 15, 20 people and the systems are just like, you can manage that with no problem whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Part of it is the way that uh, the interaction works and part of it is because it's real time, right? And when you do get into the large player counts, you have to make huge sacrifices. A Welcome 2 plays technically 100 people. You do not interact with anyone in any way for that <laughs> game. And if you're playing with 100 people, and one person at the group is slow and everyone's waiting for that person to finish up. Oh, my goodness. you don't want to get into that. And the other way they do it is they just say like a team of any number of players. So like code names, you could technically play 100 versus 100, but it's not really the experience that you're having. So I'd say large number of players for a few reasons. But um, the other thing I was going to say is lots and lots and lots of content for a much more clear reason, which is that you have to physically print it and distribute it. <laughs> And so some games will even go to the point of having a companion app just for content. I think my father's work has an app. I think maybe it does a little bit of math, but my understanding is a big part of it is just so that you can have like a bunch of different possibilities happen. Yeah, printing physical components, if it takes up a large amount of physical space, that's a huge problem. When uh, Jamie Stinkmeyer made the Scythe Big Box, it was literally an empty box and it cost like $40 Canadian. <laughs> yeah. And that's because it's expensive to ship a big empty box and it's expensive to produce a big empty box. Which is just insane, but it is a huge, huge barrier for board games. One thing that you can do to try to overcome that one specifically is the thing we were talking about a few episodes back about 
comboing stuff to create new interactions mm-hmm. so like do you know the game aegis the robot fighting game uh, i don't think so i've not played it uh, my friends made it so i really should but uh, my understanding is that there's like 20 different robots or 40 different robots and so that's you know that's 40 which is a lot to begin with but every combo of robots has its unique ability in the rule book that's 40 robots but that's actually 40 factorial different abilities or something like that like and so i'll talk about robotopia because that's the game that i've been thinking about a lot lately there are four robot guilds in robotopia each of which comes out at the start of the game with a unique ability and there's only i think four or five of each ability so that's 20 pieces of content but the combinations thereof can do really interesting things so like yeah there's you know red one green one red one green two red one green three etc but when you have red one and red two that's a very different experience to having red two and green one etc yeah, there's more combinations of a deck of 52 cards in terms of like the positioning of them than there are atoms in the universe. Exactly, yeah. And if you can make, not all of them, but if you can make a lot of those feel significantly different, that's a great way of backdooring a bunch of content in without increasing your, your printing costs. Okay, on to strengths. So this one is a little weird, but skipping phases and or turns, like passing priority basically. In the video game version of Magic the Gathering, for instance, You have to pass if it's like, okay, I've drawn my card, I have done my upkeep, I have played my cards in the first step, okay, and I've entered my attack phase, now I've chosen attackers, now you choose blockers, then we deal the damage, then we have a second main phase, then we have an end phase, then we have cleanup. I'm not kidding, those are the steps of magic. When technically you can play cards at any time in magic, you have to go through every one of the steps and say, hey, do you want to play something? No. Do you? No. In paper magic, you just say, all right, pass the turn. Or you say, like, I'll skip to attack step. Because I'm not going to do anything until then. And they're like, yeah, okay. Technically, yes, you are skipping over steps here. And maybe technically you should go back and forth. But it doesn't matter 99.999% of time. So nobody does it. Not even the pros. They'll only stop when it actually starts to matter. And because in board games, it's a much looser thing. We're, we're just here. We, we can just talk about it. We don't have to click a button every time. It makes it much smoother of an experience for those games with a lot of those steps that you don't necessarily need to do every time. Yeah. Another thing that's similar is uh, what I call soft priority. So soft priority is being able to have counterplay on other players' turns. So if I have a card that says, I cancel your effect. In a board game, you play a card and I'll just be like, yeah, I cancel it. Or you have it and you play your card and I don't care and I just don't. Side note, don't put that in the game. Don't add that to the <laughs> games, please. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs> That's how it would work in a board game. It's very simple. It's very clear. In video game adaptations of board games, this becomes really, really tricky. For instance, if I have the counter card... Do you give me the chance to counter every single card that comes up every single time? Well, in that case, it's going to stop whenever it comes to me. Everyone's going to know I have it. And we waste time because everyone has to wait for me to make a decision on it. Or you skip all those steps unless I have the card, which tells everyone I definitely have the card or I definitely do <laughs> not have the card. Yeah. So that, that's something where it gets really, really tricky to do in video games. This has actually reminded me of another weakness of the board game medium. Soulforge was digital for this reason, which is that you can't really update specific things. So in a video game, let's say you put on a hat and that increases your strength and and your dexterity and it reduces this and all that. You can technically do that in a board game, but you don't really want to. So I'll, I'll use damage as an example. In Magic the Gathering, at the end of every turn, all your monsters return to full health every turn because tracking those incremental changes is just a whole nightmare. And you could technically do it, but like something like Hearthstone, is a digital card game in which it's very common to like buff a bunch of your monsters and give them abilities and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, in a physical card game, let's say I wanted to play a card that said, hey, every card that's currently in play also gets dance ability. 
and then I want to discard that card and not have it be out anymore. You can't do that. You'd have to like physically draw on them or you'd have to have a special box of dance ability tokens or something like that. Whereas in a video game, you can just be like, cool, all those stats have now updated forever <laughs> to do that. That's a great one. That actually made me think of another weakness of board games. Board games suck. Why doesn't anyone play them? <laughs> <laughs> Which is that updates. So if you're having like a competitive high level CCG and a card is unbalanced, what do you do? You have to ban it. You have to just say, you just can't play with that thing that you bought anymore because it's too good. In a digital medium, you just adjust the numbers. You say, that card's too good, eh? it costs one more. Which which can be abused uh, <laughs> when people just constantly over-adjust everything, but uh, still still better than the alternative for sure. Mm-hmm. Next up is a big one, interpersonal interaction. This almost covers the previous two points in a sense. Uh, it, it does, I suppose, yeah. The way that I was thinking about this one was more just like the way that you get to see other people and interact with other oh, people. Oh, right, like, right. You know? So it's like right now we're talking over video. And it's nice. I like you. I'm enjoying this. But it's fundamentally a different experience to being in the same room as you. And not just because, you know, we can play Twister together and like actually physically engage. If you ever tried to play like on Board Game Arena or something like that or Tabletop Simulator and you have like a chat window open and you can see people, it's just so different. It feels much more heads down. You're focused on the thing that you're doing and then you occasionally talk. And for me, the experience is so different that I do not like it. I do not want to play digital board games because it just removes the thing that I like so much. It doesn't allow us to talk and socialize. And like, while you're thinking about something, I lean over and chat to somebody else because when you talk, everybody has to hear what you're saying. So it's very difficult to have conversations going. It's a, it's a very different experience and something where couch co-op video games can certainly do, but I think board games just excel fantastically at being able to let people engage with each other. And I think that this is board games biggest strength. And I think it's its biggest selling point is that you can spend time with people that you care about. Yeah, it's, it's always been interesting watching Among Us take off because Among Us mm. is just doing everything they can to try to replicate the actual personal experiences you get from like watching other people by giving you a lot of leeway what you can do as a character and how you can act and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, social deduction was a, a medium invented for the physical for a reason. The flip side of this, of course, is that in a video game, I can open up a secret chat and be like, hey, AJ, let's uh, let's team up against you know the, the person who's... Whereas in, in real life, if I lean over to AJ, everyone sees me lean over to AJ and theoretically can hear me whisper, you know? It's very true. This is kind of a cop-out to counter your argument, but I mean, it's the 21st century. I could just text you. <laughs> yeah, you, you could. People don't, though. <laughs> I've never played a game where like two people are, are both texting each other and, and no one's noticed. Well, then you haven't been paying enough attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> that dovetails nicely into another one, social deduction. So video games have tried to emulate this. Video games suck at this. Video games are so bad. Among Us has done pretty well, I would argue. It's sold well. <laughs> People like to play it. I do not think from like, strictly speaking, voice chat where there's eight people trying to talk over each other or like just text chat. That was an awful experience for me. Maybe you disagree though. Do you think, do you think it actually does a good job? I don't like video games, so you're asking the wrong person. But what I'm saying is that many, many, many people enjoy that game a lot and really enjoy trying to suss out who is the leader and like accuse each other. And so I don't disagree that you had a bad time with it, but a lot of people have an amazing time with that game. Fair, but many people also have amazing time playing Monopoly, for instance, right? Part of that is like different people coming to it for different things, but like the people who like Monopoly, I can show them games that I guarantee they will like way more than Monopoly. And with Among Us, 
I feel similarly. I feel like if they really like Among Us, if I showed them in-person social deduction games that they were playing with their friends, I think they would have a way better time. Yeah, I don't think anyone's like raving about Monopoly for the strengths of Monopoly. <laughs> like, I've, I've never seen anyone be like, man, I really loved how that, like, I've, I've never seen genuine, like, unabashed rants about how great Monopoly is. Whereas Among Us has a huge, thriving fan base and people play it all the time. And I don't think that they're, like, doing that without enjoying the fundamental social deduction part of the game. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that a pandemic hit and that was their only opportunities <laughs> to spend time with their friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I'm being unfair. I do want to leave that room for possibility. If you think Among Us is a well-designed game, dear listener, feel free. I think that what board games do, though, is it puts you in the same room as them. Peter can see me looking down. He can see my facial expressions. He can see a lot of details that you can't see online. And I guess that it gives an advantage to the imposter, but it removes the deduction element in a lot of ways. The amount of information I have to work off of in Among Us is a lot less than the amount of information that I have from social cues. And for me, at least, the social cues, the posture, the eyes, the tone, everything about the person as themselves is the thing that I'm trying to read. And Among Us strips that out. At the very least, there's a lot less information to work off of. It's funny because... Uh... That was almost an explicit design goal of Werewolves of Wall Street, the game we were just talking about. Uh, I, I wanted a game where you could mechanically deduce as well as just like physically deduce. And so I think that's what Among Us does. I think Among Us compensates for that gap. Like if, if you go into Among Us being like, okay, I'm going to win this game from body language. Yeah, you're going to have a very, very, very bad time because that's not possible and not what the game is trying to do. Instead, they've taken a lot of the physical and um, visual cues and made them mechanical instead. I mean, I don't know that I agree with that. If we want to compare it with Resistance, in Resistance, it's essentially, do I play a fail card or do I play a succeed card? And so for me, I'm not trying to figure out, did they play that or didn't they not, based off of like in-game information, I'm looking at the person. In Among Us, two people say, oh, that person killed that person. All the information I have to go off is what they said, but now you've removed me being able to like look at them and absorb that information. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In Among Us, you're saying like, hey, that person killed me. Well, hang on. I saw them in this part of the game at that point. No, I, I saw them at this. If Resistance was played out over 17 different rooms of a map and you can only see one room at a time, then that would all be a, a huge swathe of mechanical information that doesn't exist in the current build. Like you said, right now the current build is, did they from their hand pick the left-hand card or the right-hand card? I have no possible way of knowing. I have to go to, to physical cues. In Among Us, it's, hey, I think this person did it. Well, I saw them up here at this stage. Ah, no, I saw them up here at this stage. Like, if Among Us didn't have that information, why are there different rooms? Why are there missions? Why are there percentages? Why are there little rooms where you can see where people were at different times and see if they were lying? Among Us has a massive, massive stack of stuff that you can use to tell if someone is lying outside of uh, body language. Uh, you're right about the positioning of people. I guess in the groups I played in, they were too casual to be able to like keep track of all that information. Well, there's a special room in Among Us, which is specifically like, go there, pick a person, see where they are right now. So later, if they lie, then you can be like, ah, I checked that they lied. But other people can be like, well, I think he's lying about that line because he did it, etc. Sure. The situations come up a lot where it was like there were two people in the room and everyone knows that there were the two people in the room. And so that's just the question of what I brought up. But that's fair. There is there is more information that I was giving me credit for. Yeah, there's yeah, I, I think there's stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of information in that game to compensate for the lack of body language. Sure. So to revise that last point, board games are stronger at body language based social deduction and video games can still add in other pieces of information to be able to deduce. To me, it's more logical deduction than social deduction, but you're right. I, I don't want to uh, disparage it. There's definitely elements of both. Yeah, yeah. Cool. 
Next up is tactility and good components. So this is pretty obvious. What's in the box? <laughs> yeah. And you can have gorgeous art. You can have really nice components. There's tons and tons of different ways that you can really deliver on this aesthetic as we talked about before. But board games in particular have things that you can touch. So we're not just talking about visuals. You can do visuals in video games arguably much better than you can in board games. What you can't do is have really nice components, things that feel nice, be able to physically manipulate things and have them move in a three-dimensional space. That's something that's really special, really unique to board games and RPGs. Remember, we're, <laughs> we are separating them out. So in RPGs, obviously, you can have nice minis to represent your characters and stuff. But I think that board games can do that and then so much more. The flip side of that, of course, is that board games are one of the least accessible mediums. Anyone with a phone or computer can download a video game. Anyone with a ball can play a sport. To play a board game, you have to have that board game specifically. That game specifically, yes. I thought you were talking about monetarily. <laughs> like accessibility, board games are cheap comparatively. You need to have a video game console or a computer to play games. That's what I thought. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, to a certain extent, like everyone has a phone. So yes, you, you need a phone to be able to play a phone game. But um, once you have the phone, then you can play a thousand games for free or 10,000 games mm -hmm. for free. And for 20 bucks, you can play another thousand games. And with soccer, to play soccer, all you need is a ball. That's it. That's the, that's the entire list of things that you need. It doesn't even need to be a soccer ball or football if you're, if you're in Britain. Whereas to play Twilight Imperium, <laughs> you need Twilight Imperium and people in the same physical space and enough physical space to play it and enough time to play it. There's a whole bunch of barriers to entry with board games that just don't exist for, for a lot of video games and sports. And enough interested parties to join you to play Twilight Imperium. Yeah. How many of us have games on our shelves that our playgroup just doesn't like? So who knows if we'll ever even play it again? Yeah. Especially because games are a niche. And then finding the people who like your particular kind of game within this niche hobby is can be quite challenging. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting one. Because when we're talking about accessibility, there's also just knowledge of them. With video games, because they access a broader audience, because more people are like scrolling through Steam or the mobile games charts, you have access to a much bigger group of people. The disadvantage there is obviously there's a lot of noise as well, but you have access to so many more people. Among Us, you can play on your phone, you can play on the computer, and no matter what device you have, it will run and it will be fine, basically. Yeah. And so when you have that level of accessibility for people to be able to experience it, then your marketing dollars go a lot further because no matter how people like to enjoy games, they can enjoy that game. Yeah. Whereas with a board game, it takes a lot to get people on board picking up the game to begin with, let alone actually getting it to the table. If I recommend Limbo to you right now, you can be playing that in five minutes time. Mm -hmm. If I recommend Letter Jam to you right now, it's, it's gonna be like weeks <laughs> to get it, weeks to find a play group together, weeks, yeah, there's, there's a huge barrier of entry to board games. Mm -hmm. What as designers can we do to reduce that? So a lot of that has to do with what we were talking about earlier with on-ramping. If the rule book is easier to parse, if it's shorter, if it's cleaner, more concise, and if it gets across everything more clearly, if the components themselves are a hook, then that can draw people in. If you say, look at this beautiful game, people are going to be more likely to join you for it. If you have a game that's easy to get into, if they start having fun immediately, if you can teach them small amount of rules up front, they start getting to make decisions that matter and get to see why the game is fun, then they can grow into the strategy. And of course, price is a thing. All these different factors to on-ramp people are primarily the things that we can do to lower the barrier of entry for new people trying to play your game. Player range is, is one that you didn't mention. Yes. The, the wider your player range, the more likely people are going to be able to bring it. Obviously, there's trade-offs with everything, but that, that's something that you could factor in. Just be careful. If you say it plays two to four, but it's really a three and four person game. Right, but as designers, design a game that does play it <laughs> at a wider player range. <laughs> or aim to. Oh, yeah. 
So easy. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll just make uh, Royal Blood play 6 to 60. Easy. <laughs> I mean, we kind of actually are. But... Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's a weird example because that's roughly what we're doing. Well, Peter, it's just we're so good at this. You know, why can't everyone just make 6 to 60 player games? Come yeah, on, yeah. people. Get back. Listen to the podcast and you'll be able to. <laughs> All right, that's my main bit. Is there any other strengths that I missed? Yeah, so one that I was thinking about right from the start of the episode is something that I learned from one of my frequent uh, collaborators, David Stevenson, David Y. Stevenson. He believes that the greatest board game strength is the ability to allow people to understand systems. So he's taking a sort of educational uh, perspective of it. People are like, oh man, this group or this person or this country shouldn't have done that. His games are sort of like, well, let's explain to you why they did. Not with words, not with a video, not with a little animation, but by putting you in their position, showing you what the incentives and factors are, and because you can see every part of the system, then you can't really blame like, oh, well, they should have just done this. People do stuff for a reason and board games, because you have complete visibility of the system, they allow you to see what that reason is. I'm scrolling furiously through Twitter because that's very interesting. And I think that's a really, that's a really cool lens to check out. Bez was just recently talking about the fundamental nature of like why people go to games. And I, it was just said so perfectly. I, I'm pretty sure it was Bez. Bez just gave us a call out in uh, one of their live stream videos. So thanks, Bez. Yeah, Bez is always talking about us and I super appreciate it. <laughs> Bez, you are awesome. Bez designed Yogi, which is my favorite. Uh, so it, it's kind of adjacent to dexterity. It's it's like a more modern take on something like Twister, where you're always like shifting your body into different contortions, trying to keep these cards in different positions and follow rules. And it, it wins my award for the easiest game to get into and play, which is great for this conversation, actually. <laughs> I pulled this out once and someone was like, I don't want to learn rules. And I literally said, draw a card. That's yeah. it. Do what the card says. And that's all you have to do when you're playing. Amazing. Ah, my bad. It wasn't Bez. It was Jennifer. I'm going to try really hard to pronounce this. Shrule? Do you think that's right? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I'm Australian. Don't uh, I'm, me. I'm trying my best there. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong. There's quite a long Twitter thread here. So I'll link it in the show notes. Really good thread there. A phenomenal thread. I'd love to have her on sometime. Game design does not talk enough about a principle that is core to so, so, so many experiences. I'd even say it might be at the core of most games. It sounds a little esoteric. You know, when we say immersion, wanting impact on the world, etc., it's a desire to be witnessed. So that core there, it's a desire to be witnessed is, the, is what the thread is about. And it's talking about how when we take actions in games, those are moments where people can acknowledge that we exist and what we do matters. And that's something that we crave. We crave to see ourselves represented and to see the things that we do matter. It's, yeah, it's a really good thread. Um, how, how does it relate to what we were talking about, the systems? Yeah, so it doesn't have to do with that. It's, this is a different lens that I just really wanted to talk about. <laughs> is this something that board games do well or poorly? This is something that board games do amazingly. Being able to express yourself and having other people see the things that you've done and acknowledge them and being able to express yourself, see your work. Like this is, gotcha. this is exactly games. This is gotcha. gameplay. See, I think I've interpreted that thread very differently because I saw that oh. thread as being talking about the world reacting to specifically what you did and how board games are not very good at that with, with rare exception. So I, I think in the thread, uh, she mentioned something like, maybe it wasn't this thread, maybe Bez retweeted it and this is where we we're all coming from. Something about like a game where you do a thing and that tucks a card into a deck later. So what, later when you get to that, it's like, aha, I'm reacting to that specific thing that you did instead of just the generic thing that everyone does every turn in a board game. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I can see that. So the line that I'm reading here is, 
I think games are magic because they fulfill our fundamental human desire to be witnessed. I don't think that what Jennifer is saying is that it's something that's super rare, but maybe I... I thought she was talking about video games. I think video games do it very well. Okay, I'm going to have to go back and reread this thread. <laughs> this is something, though, that we should get Jennifer on at some point and talk about this because yeah, it's be a great. super interesting topic. Okay, enough about going on about that <laughs> uh, tangent. Okay. What else do board games do really well? So obviously the thing that I mentioned at the start, which is letting you see the complete everything like by not hiding anything under the hood it lets you understand how everything works and that for me as as a puzzle solver that's a really compelling puzzle we've had some people write in and say they've started doing my sudokus which is very flattering uh you can check out my sudokus in the show notes there's a lot of them and sudokus are sort of beautiful because they are a very very small set of rules and from that you can deduce huge amounts of information through inference and through like second level deduction all that board games i think really excel at doing that so uh, let's talk about Istanbul. Istanbul, one of my favorite games, which we talk about all the time. Istanbul has a very simple system. You move somewhere, you drop an assistant, you move somewhere else, you drop an assistant, or you move somewhere, you pick up an assistant. Those are the two options. Very simple. And yet the first time everyone plays it, they find themselves in a corner, unable to get out or unnecessarily repeating actions and all that. So it's a very simple set of rules that has these enormous knock-on effects. And that's, I think, a real strength of board games slash Sudoku puzzles where you set up these simple rules and then because people can see the entire system, they have to learn those rules and they will, through trial and error, through through inference, work out how they work. Whereas video games are more likely, and this is sort of what I was talking about at the beginning when I was saying I like Limbo and Oddworld, video games are more likely to set up a thing and then be like, and it happened just just magically. It just happened because of magic. It doesn't make you do the work. Hmm. So I think, I think board games are very, very good at puzzles. Whereas video games like there are some amazing puzzle games like portal and the witness and all that but quite often at the end of the puzzle you'll be like i don't really know how i got that but oh it seemed to work tiny tangent here so there's two types of puzzle games i haven't seen this talked about very much but it's a pretty intuitive thing there's linear puzzles where it's like here are the pieces put them in the right order like a jigsaw puzzle like a jigsaw puzzle and then there's lateral thinking puzzles and lateral thinking are once you understand the rules of the puzzle itself, you have solved it. So this would be something like figuring out in Portal that you can drop something through one portal and it will maintain the momentum. And you're like, whoa, that's a cool thing. Oftentimes you'll apply the thing you learned from lateral thinking into linear thinking puzzles. I exclusively like lateral thinking puzzles. Oh, really? <laughs> and linear thinking puzzles just bore me to tears. So usually I stop playing puzzle games when they stop offering me lateral thinking. So I guess board games are very good at linear thinking and puzzles and not so good at lateral thinking puzzles. So the point of being almost impossible to do lateral thinking puzzles. Not impossible, actually. Something like Meow is a lateral thinking puzzle. I just think that it's a memory test. It's not, because you have to deduce the rules. Yeah, 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 all right. <laughs> I was going to say, like, yeah, it's, it's, I'll, I'll fight this one. <laughs> I played a game of Meow once where someone was going honk. Someone was, was saying honk. And a lot of us were like, oh, okay, they're pretending to be a car. And we could have just said honk, but instead we started doing other car stuff. And it turned out they were pretending to be a goose. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so like we had information, but we didn't have the rule. And once we worked out the rule, once we worked out all the rules, then we win the game. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So one thing I would say board games are very good at are expression-driven games. Like we've talked about in the past. So like Dixit or Mysterium or stuff like that. And you can do that in a, in a video game, but you can only really do it in a way that you might as well be playing a board game. So like Jackbox, Jackbox games could almost all be board games uh, with, with a few exceptions because like in a single player video game, you can't really do Dixit. 
you can't really do Mysterium. I want to push back on that not being able to do expression. Is that the claim that you're making? Like board games are much better expression than video games? I, I think that's the strength of board games, yeah. So like, what about Minecraft? Minecraft is extremely effective at the expression aesthetic. Right, but Minecraft is, is not doing that as part of a game. Like the, the game of Minecraft is not build a puzzle, is, is not build a painting. Yeah, I guess it gets tricky because Minecraft, the fact that you can beat Minecraft was an afterthought, right? That right. was something that was added way down the line. Yeah, Minecraft is Lego. Yes. Minecraft yeah. is Lego where they added an ending to Lego, but that, that's, that's, you know, it's a toy. Toys are better at it than, than board games are for sure. <laughs> I just feel like there's so much customization in video games, right? Like, even if you just look at the character creator in a video game, let alone the fact that there's so many choices. Like, if you look at Fallout 3, the amount of choices that you have to make... Right, but, but again, the, these are all just toys. These these have very, like, the the way that you dress up your video game character is a toy. It's like dressing up a Barbie. It has nothing to do with how well you're playing the game. Or if they do, it's very tacked on and almost irrelevant. Your stats change. And you can also level up your character differently. And you can also make choices that impact the world. These are... Tons of there's tons of expression in there. Right, but I'm, I'm comparing that to Dixit, where you are like expressing a thing that no one else has ever expressed through like a combination of, of, of bars. I see. Do you really feel like for expression you have to have the because um, this isn't one of my core aesthetics. Do you feel like for expression you have to have something that's unique? I don't think it has to be unique. Is so in Dixit. Imagine if you took out the expressive element. Like, what what is the game at that point? It's like apples to apples, probably. There, there is no game left anymore. It's just, it's just nothing. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, take out the the character customization out of Fallout. Are you saying that like there's no game left? No, but I'm like that was one of my many examples of ways that you can express yourself in Fallout. Right, but none of them tied to the game loop. Like the core game loop has nothing to do with expression. It does. Like the the choices that you make directly affect the world and the characters and the quests and the things that you get from that. Right, like your quest rewards and stuff. What, what do you mean? I'm, I'm confused. I have a quest and I can either rob from this faction and steal this money from their vault or maybe instead I, you know, release some prisoners or I join their faction. Like all of these things are different options that you have. Right, but that, that's just that's just a multiple choice quiz. That's that's not like I'm, I'm talking about like pure expression of like creating something as opposed to just playing with a toy. What about when it wasn't laid out and you came up with a creative expression on your own that other people can also do just as easily as they could come up with the same Dixit clue as you. Many times in video games, it's not explicitly clear, choose A or B, and here's the outcomes. It's like, oh, I thought to shoot. It's like if you're playing Spec Ops The Line, and and the, the guy says, you have to shoot this person or this person, who do you want to let free? Well, you could just shoot the snipers who were aiming at them, or you, know, you could try and shoot the rope out and let them fall down. Those are different ways that you could express yourself, and yes, other people can as well. But I wouldn't say that it feels like a multiple choice quiz. I, I still feel like they would deliver on the expression. I'm, I'm talking about more stuff like scribble notes, where you can type anything into the box whatsoever. Like with Dixit, you can do anything. There is no limit. There is no upper limit on that. You can do anything that you like. Scribble notes tries to do that, but very quickly runs into a technical limit. I hear what you're saying. I'm trying to figure out what the distinction is. I'm not trying to be antagonistic. The main reason I'm talking about this right now is because I do not have expression as a core aesthetic, and yet I love Fallout 3 for being able to make all those different choices. So I'm trying to figure out what's the difference and how can we sort of structure our conversation around the difference between those two things. That's the disconnect in my head. Imagine I gave to you a deck of, of 20 cards, and I said, pick any four of these 20. That for me is, is not really an expression of creativity. That's not a expression-based or creative-based thing. That's just I, I, I pick, you know, I pick these four, and maybe, hey, you know, maybe people feel like they're expressing themselves by doing that, but they're 
pick, picking from a, a preset list is very different to saying, hey, you can do anything at this stage. Right. I mean, most games don't let you do anything, though. Most games have a lot more rules than Dixit does. Dixit is a particularly extreme example of this. Yeah, but I, there are a few of these that I, th I think exist. I, th I think that board games do this and other game, other game types can't necessarily do that. Hmm. Let's call it there, but I, I might want to come back to this one later because it's a really interesting topic. You might have some follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to ruminate on this far. I'm going to listen to this episode again. I'm going to think about it more and then we can come back to this sometime. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, that's all the stuff that I had for board game strengths and weaknesses. Anything else from you? No, that's good. What is our teaser? Tease me, AJ. Tease me. Tell you what, I'll think about a teaser while I ask you your fun question. So let's start with the fun question. So because Peter wasn't here last week, instead of jumping straight into our teaser, we're going to ask him the fun question from the last episode. Ooh, I haven't listened to this yet. We already know my answer because I've already said it because it's the past now. But Peter, <laughs> we're laughing because I haven't recorded that one yet. <laughs> Peter, the question that I will be asking myself is what is your phobia or phobias and how do you get them? Heights is, is my main phobia. I just uh, I just don't like heights. Just don't like them. To the point where like, if I can avoid walking with those grills on a footpath, I will absolutely avoid it. I just don't like being above that stuff. I just immediately start imagining it collapsing. What do you mean by how do I get them? Is there a particular thing that you know triggered that phobia? Oh, if no, not, that's no, fine. I've just, I've just always been afraid of, afraid of heights. Um, that, that's my main one. Just heights uh, make me deeply, deeply uncomfortable. I try not to let it hold me back. So like when I worked at a gas station, we had to change the numbers on the sign by climbing a ladder. So I'd always volunteer for that job because I didn't want like my fears to control me. But uh, yeah, my phobia <laughs> is, is definitely heights. It's very impressive. Well, I'm not going to tell you what mine is because I'm saving <laughs> that for the other episode. So the teaser for next episode is going to be, we are going to talk about the most successful part of board games. Is that teasy? Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that's true. It must be. It must be true. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. So we're going to talk about the, the most successful aspect of board games. Before we wrap up, sorry, I have one more thought. It, it occurred to me why board games can hit that creativity thing in a way that video games can, but not in a way that's unique, like that, that they're not just being a board game. I'm going to use your, uh, your game, the Would I Lie to You game, uh, which I can't remember the name of. Uh, currently Icebreaker, but I'd love to call it Would I Lie to You. <laughs> <laughs> so Icebreaker, for example, says, hey, here is a prompt, now tell a story. And it's not just doing that like an RPG, being like, oh, we're just going to tell stories now. It's got a mechanical impact and influence and all that kind of stuff. I've never seen a video game do something like that, with the possible exception of Jackbox. And that, that's what I mean when I say like, from a prompt or from an instruction, you can do whatever you like, and it has not only mechanical impact, but significant mechanical impact. The closest I can think of is in Pokemon, you get to type your name in at the beginning. <laughs> and then once you've typed your name in, all the characters will call you that for the rest of the game, but it has no mechanical impact. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where it's deeply interpersonal, expression-based communication. That actually really helps. Now I think I understand. So in video games, you have to code everything, that every possible outcome. Yes, yes, yes. And in board games you don't have that restriction around what you can do. Exactly. That, that's, that's what I was trying to say. So that's why, like, putting on an outfit in Borderlands, I'm like, that. that's not <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about <laughs> in the sliders. Like, that, that, it, it's, it's not only not the same, it's, it's not even close to what I'm trying to, trying to talk about. Before we wrap up, you forgot. You answered last episode's question. We still have a fun question for this episode that we get to do. <laughs> oh, we have to do this for this episode. Oh, carry on. Yes, yes. What is a custom of the country you currently live in that you like and a custom that you do not like. 
You're speaking to an immigrant, so that's a that's a very interesting question because I specifically moved here because there was so much I liked about this country. So <laughs> I could go on for a long time about like America. Obviously, has many issues, but I do very much like a lot of the stuff that America does that Australia didn't and that Canada doesn't. My favorite one is definitely that this is. Uh, do you know what tall poppy syndrome is? No. So tall poppy syndrome. It's a term mostly used in Australia, but it's not. It doesn't originate from there. My understanding is that like if you have a field full of poppies, and one of them is taller than the rest the farmer will glance out and be like ah those puppies need trimming and come out and cut down all, all the puppies hmm. so tall puppy syndrome is when you see someone who is doing well or better than you or better than the average you've got to pull them down for survival and that is a defining trait of australia and also a pretty massive trait in canada and america just doesn't have it america loves watching people succeed if, if i go into a room and i say hey i'm great people are like oh cool this guy seems great if I go to a room in Australia or Canada and say I'm great, people are like, oh, this guy's awful. <laughs> like, he sucks. We need to bring him down. And so I like mm. the ability to be confident and, you know, quote unquote American. That's, that's one of my absolute favorite things about this country is that they don't punish confidence or success. Obviously, like all things that can be taken too far. And you can see that in terms of like the, the wealth disparity, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, as a cultural more, that's something I very much like about America. Uh, something I really, really intensely dislike is tipping. I think tipping is the absolute worst. And also uh, taxes not being shown. So in Australia, the number that you see, the price of something, is what you pay. If it says $9.99, you will pay $10. Who's going to have pennies? But you'll pay $10, and that's it. That's the end of the transaction. <laughs> Here, if I see $9.99, I'm like, oh, so what is that? $13, bucks, $14, bucks, $15? Bucks? It really is just, it might as well say, hey, here is the, here is not the right answer, but it's the lower bound of what the answers could be. And the upper bound is probably double this. I just have to be like, okay, it's roughly somewhere in between this number and double it. It drives me absolutely bonkers. Both Canada and America do it, and I hate it. <laughs> uh, so what about you, AJ? Yeah, same. I cannot stand tipping. I actively avoid restaurants where you tip. I actively avoid most places that expect tipping. I get that they're not paid a normal wage and that they do need tips to make up for that. I'm just saying I don't like it. I'd rather my meal be more expensive and not pay for more. Especially because if somebody just comes over with a smile and brings me my food, that's the bare minimum of your job. You did not do anything <laughs> better. I'll usually tip, but I'll tip like a scumbag. Ah, oh, you Russia. Yeah, I'll, I'll be like, you didn't do anything special, so here's like, I don't know, 10% or something. Ah, uh, you, are, you are the worst. If someone does a bad job, I just won't. I just won't tip. Wow. But if someone does a really good job, I promise you, I always make up for it like crazy you're playing into the system this this is you being like <laughs> in my defense i do exactly what the system encourages and thus propagate it well what i'm saying is i don't want the system to exist <laughs> but by, by doing what the system is strong at you're encouraging it to exist right i mean this is also why i don't try to go to restaurants yeah. i avoid it <laughs> but like i went to a restaurant one time and i had a milkshake so it was like i don't know three or four dollars and then i left her a 25 dollar tip Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was the best server that I had in a year. And I was like, you did a great job. You deserve to get a good tip. These are the tips that I should have given to other people that society says I'm supposed to automatically. Like you start at like 15% tip. And I'm like, no, these are yours. You get them. What you're doing is the defense of tipping. This is how people keep <laughs> tipping going. They're like, ah, but tipping is a meritocracy, which is good. And you're like, I hate tipping. So I use it as a meritocracy. The problem is I feel really guilty when I don't give money to the people who I know are making like $4 an hour. So give them the money. <laughs> you're telling me i need to stop playing into the system and need to keep playing the system it's nonsense anyway i don't like tipping 
I also really hate giving gifts. I hate that there's all these holidays where it's like, oh, it's your birthday, you should get them a gift. Oh, it's Christmas, you should, you should get them a gift. And like after the holidays, it's like, what did you get? I don't care. I don't care about <laughs> any of it. If I see something that I think Pierre likes, I'm just going to buy it for him. doesn't matter what time of year it is. If I don't see something that I think he likes, I'm not going to buy it for him just because I feel obligated to buy something. Uh, if, you want, if you want more reasons to hate tipping, it has a very, very, very racist origin. You'll be happy to know. <laughs> You'll be happy to know. <laughs> yeah, I love it when things have racist origin. <laughs> well, it gives it gives you more reasons to hate it. You can be like, oh, I'm justified in hating this terrible system. It's racist. Thanks for feeding my confirmation bias. <laughs> A custom I do like about Canada is I like taking my shoes off before entering someone's home. I don't know why that's not a thing in the U.S. Why do you want dirty floors? I don't understand. Uh, it, it's not. It's not a, a Canadian thing. It's a cold weather thing. Anywhere that has snow, that's the custom. Anywhere they don't have snow, that's not the custom. But you have dirt in America. Don't you not want to track dirt all over your house and scratch up your hardwood floors? They don't necessarily have the same hardwood floors because they're built for people to be wearing shoes on. (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. Y'all have fun cleaning up all that dirt and pebbles out of your your thing. It's interesting. I I watched a video once where someone was talking about this, a, a U.S. citizen, and they were defending the practice. And they said specifically... Don't take off your shoes. I don't want you getting comfortable. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> wow. Uh, that really stuck with me for some reason. For me, it's just an efficiency thing. Like, I, I come from a country where we don't have snow, so you don't take off your shoes when you're into the house because it allows you to, like, go in and out 10 times in an hour without have, every time having to stop and put shoes on and stop and take shoes off and stop and put shoes on. Whereas, b- because mean, it's a cold country, you're more likely to, like, once you're in, you stay in. Once you're out, you stay out. Aren't Australian houses technically tense anyway? They're, they're not. They're, no, are you referring to that news article from like 10 years ago? Uh, you referenced them as being basically tense once. Right. Not technically tense. Basically tense. Uh, <laughs> basically tense. My apologies. Uh, I was like, technically tense? That's a weird way to put it. Um, no, Australia has very, very poor uh, cold insulation. Weather, yeah, insulation. So in the cold, they get people die, which is bad. Don't die is my advice. So that is all for this episode of Fun Problems. Problems are fun. I'm Peter C. Haywood. I'm AJ Brandon. And thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.